Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We've been out of Hebrews for a couple of weeks, and that was refreshing in a way, but now we're back. And we're back in a really good place because what he's going to do in this passage is sort of sum up everything he said to this point in a very succinct way. One of my children growing up as a small child used to have a habit of telling us stories about her life. But she was the most detail-oriented child I've ever known. And her stories would go on and on and on. And you could see everybody going, and the point is, and she has learned over time, to be more succinct. And the writer of Hebrews is preaching a sermon. That's what this letter is. It is a sermon to a particular church that's struggling. This church is struggling because this letter was written to Jewish converts to Christianity who were suffering severe persecution for their faith. They were being tempted to revert back to um, the Old Covenant, that is the Mosaic Covenant and all the forms and ceremonies in order to avoid such persecution. And the author of Hebrews, in so many words, is telling these Christians that re to return to the Mosaic Covenant ceremonies would be worse than futile because the Old Covenant administration was never intended by God to be permanent. And so he's going to talk in this passage about a new covenant. Now, let me help you understand, I'm going to preach two messages on this chapter, so if some things don't get said, they will get said next week. But what I do want to do is focus your attention now on chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who differ according, uh, who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, uh, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenants I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look carefully together at Hebrews chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit of God would give us help, would come to our aid, would enlighten us, would help us see, experience, know, and discern the truth. And we pray that what we hear today will be planted in our hearts, that will eventually grow into fruit, that will bring glory to our Savior, And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point of the book of Hebrews up to this point that he has been trying to make and that is reinforced by this text tells us the following. Jesus Christ did not come to start a new religion. He didn't come to start the best religion, he came to end religion totally. To embrace Jesus Christ is to end religion, to move away from all religion. Jesus came to end all religion, therefore to give us a new radical covenant relationship with our triune God. Now, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 tell us two things that are very important, that are different regarding the priesthood of Jesus. First, and this is important, he as a priest sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He sits at the right hand of the throne, a position we know of authority. He sits as a co-regent, a ruler, a king. In the Old Testament, you never have a ruler as a priest, and you never have a ruler who is a priest, and you never have a priest who is a king, and you never have a king who is a priest, except for that mystic, shadowy figure called Melchizedek. And Jesus is both a priest and a king. Second, though he is a priest, Though he is serving and ministering, he is seated. Notice that he's seated. No priest ever ministers under the old covenant seated. What is he doing seated? Far more than most of us know. If you want to know the magnitude of what's being said, you need to think about what I brought up in the beginning. What is religion? What is religion? And if you look at the religions of the world, two things stand out in common. And these things are all going to tie together as we go. The first thing I would say about all the religions in the world is they have two components. The first component is 
All religions believe the realities of nature are behind the realities of nature. There is an ultimate reality. All the religions of the world believe that there is something or someone or some power or some force or some being behind reality as we see it. That is nature, the world around us, other people. In other words, religions assume or presume or have as a presupposition there is some sort of ultimate reality out there. That's called metaphysics for those that are philosophically aware. There's been arguments about metaphysics, but this is reality with a capital R. There is some transcendent power above and behind nature that can't be reduced to mere empirical or scientific facts or scientific uh, investigation or factors. So there's an ultimate reality. Second thing that all religions appear to embrace, there is some gap between us and the ultimate reality. There's a gap that needs to be bridged. There's a distance. There are barriers that need to be overcome. We're not as connected to that ultimate reality as well as we should be. And we need something to, me to mediate or create the connection, or we need something to bridge the gap. And so all religions assume, yes, out beyond nature, transcendent above nature, there is some form, some kind of ultimate reality. But because of that, there's a huge gap between where I am and where ultimate reality is, and so there's got to be some means of connecting with ultimate reality. There's got to be something that will mediate a connection between me and ultimate reality. And so that's what all religions believe, believe together. And after that, the diversity is enormous, as you all know, as to how the gap is bridged. The religions differ enormously on how that mediation occurs. So you have religions who say it's done through sacrifice and offerings and oblations and ablutions. There are others who put all their emphasis on moral codes or living a good life or doing good works. Then you have a lot of emphasis on rituals and incantations or rites or prayer or meditation or transformation of consciousness. There will be some religions that say, oh, the ultimate reality, the divine, is within you. We hear that a lot in New Age religion, New Age philosophy and teaching, is that all this idea about God being transcendent gets swallowed up because your body is really the receptacle of the divine. He is within you. So therefore, this idea of having to do any kind of gap covering is moot. You just have to learn, they say, how to tap into it. And uh, there'll be some religions that say that. Uh, the problem with you is that you're unenlightened. And there's a gap. And you have to overcome it. So we're going to help you transform your consciousness. Everybody says there's an ultimate reality. Everybody agrees that there's some kind of gap. And everybody agrees that in order for that gap to be crossed, there's got to be some sort of bridge to get us to the reality. And so ancient people were all very religious. Many modern people believe everything exists and everything that happens 
They're naturalists, has a, a, therefore a natural scientific explanation. Everything that happens is really some empirical, natural, scientific factor. Therefore, they would say religion is irrelevant. We don't need God in the same way that the ancients needed God. But that is utterly ridiculous if you look at the human race. It has not happened at all. One very bright philosopher in the academic world named Stanley Fish, who I'm reading a book by called How to Win Arguments because I don't like to lose them. So he's saying this. He's an atheist. He's an agnostic. And he is saying, he wrote a, an astonishing article in which he said religion is poised to make a comeback in the academic world where it has heretofore been considered irrelevant for years. For decades, the academic world was a stronghold of people who say we can explain everything in terms of scientific, natural, empirical causes. We don't need any God concept to explain the world. But Fish says a new generation of academics who are coming are looking to reestablish religion as the answer. In other words, the triumvirate of race, gender, and class, the center of intellectual energy in the academy, is going to be replaced, according to Stanley Fish, by religion. I think that's fascinating. But evolutionary biologists still say, oh yes, your brain tells you there's a God and there's absolute truth, but really that's just hardwired, a, a, a brain chemical response designed to pass on to your genetic code. You want to talk about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, there you have it. Religion is not weakening, it's getting stronger. And so when you try to stamp out religion, it makes society even the more brutal and oppressive than it was when religion was dominant. But Christianity, in the most unique possible way, says what? Embrace Jesus because Jesus came not to start a new religion, not to start a better religion, but to end religion altogether. Now you're in a position to understand what he's saying. He's a priest, and he's a king, and that is never combined, and here's the reason it's never combined in the Old Testament. The king represents God to the people. He brings God's law and says you must obey. But the priest represents the people to God. The priest mediates, sacrifice, atones for the failures of the people to obey the law the king had given them. The king represents God to the people. The priest represents the people to God. Jesus is a priest king. That's what the Bible says. First, Jesus is the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. The whole book of Hebrews is about this. Do you remember in the very first chapter it said, Jesus who made the universe is the radiance of God's glory and the very exact image of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the glory of God. And that's what filled the temple. In John chapter 2, when Jesus said about his body, tear down this body, and in three days I'll raise it up again, he is saying, the glory of God fills my body, as the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. In other words, I am the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. Nobody, no one has ever said this before. 
Because every other religion has a founder, of course, and the founder of every other religion has always said, I'm a teacher pointing to ultimate reality. Maybe they even said, I'm the ultimate teacher pointing to the ultimate reality. Jesus says, I am the ultimate reality to which all the teachers, prophets, preachers, and sages point. Nobody's ever said that. I am the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. Secondly, he tells us he's a priest. He is also the bridge over the gap. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand is to bridge over the gap between us and that which is divine. That is why you have Paul saying something like this in Colossians 1. He says, once you are alienated from God, there's the gap. Once you are alienated from God, but now you have been brought near through uh, the work of Jesus Christ. Once you were alienated from God, there's the gap, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you perfect in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Every other religion says, do this, give this, offer this, live this, experience this, and that will send you over the gap to connect with God. But Jesus said, I'm the God who at infinite cost to myself has come over the gap, has come over the barriers to you, barriers and a gap that you with your puny little religious observances would have never been able to bridge, but I have come to you. That is the reason why he is seated. Do you know why he's seated? Because all the religious work is done. Jesus Christ is saying, I conclude the work of religion. Bringing God over to us and us to God, it's over. I've concluded it. I finished it. Religion is finished. You don't need it anymore. He's the final temple to end all te temples. He's the final priest to end all priests. He's the final king to end all kings. He also, of course, is the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The only place that I know where Paul references religion is in reference to his Pharisaism, but never is it applied to Christianity. Now, understanding something about this Hebrew church, they lived probably in a Roman context. And the Romans, by the way, loved religions. Everybody had their own religion. Every street corner had a different religion and a different temple of some kind or the other. And they had a thousand religions, and yet they persecuted Christians, and they called them atheists. Do you know why? Because the Romans knew something that sometimes you and I don't seem to know. Even the average person in church doesn't know. The average person in society doesn't know. Christianity is not the beginning of a new religion. It was the anti-religion. It was the end of all religions. That's why Romans considered it the most radical thing anyone had ever said, and that's why they called Christians atheists. Dick Lucas, who is a British pastor, who I get a lot of inspiration from reading his sermons, says if you really want to understand what the book of Hebrews is about, you have to imagine a conversation between a Roman and a Christian neighbor. Listen. In the first century, the Roman says, oh, so you have a new religion. That's very interesting. Where is your temple? And the Christian says, what? 
No temple. Jesus is our temple. Wow. Where do your priests operate for crying out loud? We don't need priests. Jesus is our priest. No priest. Where do you do your sacrifices? Where do you do your offerings? Where do you do the things so that your God will accept you? Jesus is our sacrifice, and we're already accepted. What kind of religion is this? It's not a religion at all. Jesus did not come to give you a new religion, but rather to give you a radical new covenant relationship with God. Christianity doesn't bring you a religion. It brings you a person. In fact, in Christianity, the gospel is not just the end of religion. It is the opposite of every religion because it says, live like this and God will accept you. And the gospel says, at infinite cost through Jesus Christ, God has already accepted you. Now live like this. They are utterly different. It is totally not just the end of religion. It is the absolute contradiction and opposite of religion because religion is always, I do good works, I put God in debt to me, and therefore he owes me a certain kind of life. And that is the polar opposite of Jesus has come and accomplished everything for me, and now he gives me acceptance with God as a reward, and because of that, now I live a different kind of life. And that's what the book of Hebrews is hammering home to this church, that if you go back to the Mosaic Covenant, which we'll talk about more next week, you're absolutely, totally self-defeating yourself in every way. I know that was redundant, but sometimes it comes out. And by the way, I got my T.D. Jakes towel today. (laughs) You ever seen T.D. Jakes preach? The man doesn't have one towel, he has 20 towels. And it's a little bit humid in here today, isn't it? Reminds me of preaching in Louisiana, and I'm just getting warmed up. Now, Jesus came not to give us religion, but he did come to give us a new covenant relationship with God. Jesus came to give us a radical new covenant relationship. Well, what's covenant? What is a covenant? You know, we throw that word around here so much. But you have to be really careful with defining what this word is. So what's a covenant? He said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. What's a covenant? First of all, we don't really have a good English word for it. The average person hears the word covenant, and somebody says, what's a covenant? Define covenant, and you'll probably hear something like what? It's a contract. It's a contract, a legal matter. But that is a very inadequate synonym. Don't say that. There isn't a synonym anywhere that can fully define what a covenant is. But in the Bible, the most intimate relationships were the most binding relationships. A covenant relationship that is totally binding and yet totally intimate at once. In our culture, we tend to pit the personal against the legal and the formal, but that's not how the Bible sees it. In fact, the Bible says the more intimate, the more delightful, the more personal a relationship, the more binding, the more solemn, and the more legal it should be. Do you know why? Because the Bible understands something, and the Bible understanding of a covenant reflects 
the paradoxical nature of human relationships. What's a paradox? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you now. It could be a friendship. It could be a love relationship. It could be a marriage. If two people start a relationship and they both start off like this and they say to each other, I will be, this is what you hear in a lot of contemporary wedding vows when they write the vows. I will be what I should be to you in this relationship if and to the degree you are what you should be. If that's how a relationship starts, you will find that relationship very quickly becoming cold, becoming distant, becoming at best a shaky kind of business arrangement. There will be no intimacy. Oh my goodness, no intimacy at all. Do you know why? Because neither person wants to give up their independence. There's no in intimacy without giving up autonomy. There's no intimacy without binding yourself and limiting yourself. If two people start a relationship like this and they say to each other, I will be what I should be in this relationship, whether you are what you should be or not, I will be what I should be even if you're failing to be what you should be. I'm going to put your needs ahead of my needs. I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to bind myself. I'm going to be caring and kind to you whether I feel like it or not. The great paradox is, in relationships where people are committed despite their feelings, this is a place where intimate feelings can grow. You know why? One word. It's safe. Did you hear me? It's safe. It's safe. The more committed a relationship is, the more intimate it will get, because the more I see somebody saying to me, I'm going to be what I should be to you, even if you're not. I can be weak, I can share, I can open up, only to the degree that you're willing to give up your independence. Can you know the freedom of an intimate relationship? And that is the paradox. And that, in a nutshell, is what's wrong with so many marriages. They are conditional contracts. They are not unconditional covenants. Only to the degree you're committed to somebody to be kind in spite of how you feel will you find intimate feelings being capable of being expressed where you will be comfortable being vulnerable. The more binding, the more intimate, that's what a covenant relationship is. So what is the new covenant? Well, God talks about an old covenant he had, a relationship. That's what a covenant is. It's a binding, intimate relationship. But his old covenant, the Mosaic covenant with the house of Israel, was extremely religious. His old covenant with the house of Israel had a lot of the marks of religion. Not all, but a lot of them. It's a complicated issue between the old and new covenant. But let me just make one point here to begin with. In verse 9 you see, They did not remain faithful to my covenant, and what? I turned away from them. That's religion. Do you know what religion is? In religion, you set up a conditional, selfish, business relationship with a deity. Do you know what religion is? In religion, you come to church, or you start to pray, or you start to read your Bible, and here's what you're saying. I will be the religious and good and moral person I should be as long as you're blessing me and helping me make money and giving me good health and helping me find somebody decent to marry. In other words, I'll do what I should do to the degree that you're doing what you should do. That is religion. That is quid pro quo. 
That is tit for tat. Of course, the idea is in religion that the D is looking down at the same time and saying, yes, these people over here are honoring me and they're worshiping me, so I'll be good to them. And there's people over here who are not honoring me, they're not worshiping me, so I'm not going to be good to him. That is religion, and here it is. If they do not remain faithful to my covenant, I turn my face away from them. If I see their sin, I turn my face away from them. The new covenant is not religion. In the new covenant, we have in verse 12, and verse 9 says, They sinned, so I turn my face away from them. But in verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's the opposite. Do you see that? In the Old Covenant, God sees our sin and turns His face away from us. But in the New Covenant, God sees us and turns His face away from our sins. He even turns His memory away from our sins. And so the Old Covenant is basically religious. It's a conditional business relationship. And there's no intimacy in it. And the New Covenant is unconditional. Therefore, there's a place for intimacy and to grow. How could it be unconditional? God says, even if you sin, I'll never turn my face away from you. I will only turn my face away from your sins. How can that happen? Here's how it can happen. You know how a relationship gets started that's a covenant relationship? It's when somebody looks and says, I will be what I should be to you. I'll be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. Where did God do that? Where did God say that? Where did God get the covenant relationship rolling? I was talking to someone not too long ago who said, what I hate about all this religious stuff is you need to submit to God's will. I have to adjust to God. Why do I always have to adjust to God? Why can't God ever adjust to me? Anyone who ever said, I believe, anytime she ever said that to any Christian type, they said, how terrible, what do you mean? God never adjusts to us, we adjust to him. That is not true. God does adjust to us cosmically and infinitely on the cross. He adjusted to our sinfulness. He said, I'm going to be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. Do you know what that cost him? On the cross, the Father turned His face away from the Son. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken. That's the covenant curse. The Father turned His face away from the Son on the cross. Jesus was utterly and absolutely forsaken. That's the covenant curse of verse 9. Jesus did keep the covenant. He was perfectly obedient. But God turned His face. Why? He got the covenant curse. So we could get the covenant blessings unconditionally and eternally. When you realize what he did for you, when you realize he took his own covenant curse, as it were, so that he could say, even when you sin, I remember your sins no more. We said the more binding a covenant is, the more binding a relationship is, the more intimate it can be. Jesus Christ bound himself. He nailed himself to you. If he bound himself like that, how intimate could this relationship be? What's interesting is the quid pro quo is now forever over. One of the seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross is he screamed out, Tetelestai! Now, unless you're a Greek scholar, you may not know what that means. Sounds like a 
Sputnik satellite, doesn't it? To telestop. It means it is what? Finished. What's finished? Religion. <laughs> it's finished. It's done. I have come. Everything under the Mosaic Covenant that pointed to that which would take away our sin, that which would bring us into a relationship with God, was fulfilled by our Savior upon the cross. If you're a religious person and you sit around and say, I'm coming to church, I'm being very, very good, and I'm trying really hard to live a good life, and my life isn't going that well, and my neighbor, who, who's not even making an attempt to live a good life, his life is going a whole lot better than mine. That's religion. You ever thought like that? That's because your heart is still shot through. It's still the default mode of the human heart. Do you know why? You're saying, I'm doing this, this, and this. What has God done for me lately? Stop, be quiet, and look at the cross. A person who has been changed by the gospel, who's been brought into a relationship of grace, who's been brought into a new covenant relationship with God, will not focus on that question. God unconditionally loved me, now I unconditionally love him. As a result, the possibilities of intimacy in this relationship are staggering. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? How do you know? How do you know if you are in this new covenant relationship? How do you know you have broken out of religion, which is the default mode of the human heart? You know, there is something wired, hardwired, into our DNA in creation that makes us think we got to earn it. We have to perform. We have to achieve. We have to merit. We have to live up. We have to complete. We have to do. And Christianity is the only voice saying it's over. It's done. The difference between Christianity and religion is religion is due ad infinitum. Christianity is done. Fall in love with your God like you never have before. It's done. And so therefore the capacity for intimacy is overwhelming. How do you know if you're in a new covenant? There are three marks, and I'm just going to hit these really quick because I'm starting to feel it. There are three ways you can know that you have a new covenant relationship. Number one, you have intimacy rather than formalism. They will all know me. Number two, equality versus classism, from the least of them to the greatest. And number three, community versus individualism. They will be my people. Let me be brief. Let me run through these really quick and we'll be done. First of all, you have intimacy rather than formalism. In religion, no intimacy with God. God is distant. Basically, it's a week-by-week -week thing. It's a renewable contract. I'm doing my best. Are you doing your best? All sorts of things. You may get inspired sometimes. You may get convicted sometimes. But let me ask you, do you know Him? Do you see what it says? They will all know me. Not about me, they will know me. Have you experienced His love upon your heart as an overwhelming encounter? Have you ever read the scripture and found it said, instead of just abstract concepts, some of the things the Bible says begins to become alive and radioactive and transforming? 
They become living, bright realities. They console you. They comfort you. They change you in the way in which you react to the world and life. Have you ever had a sense of God taking you by the scruff of your neck and sticking you up to the mirror and saying, Will you please look at yourself for one minute? Have you ever had a sense that you're actually in a relationship? Is there personal interaction? Is there personal encounter? Is there personal dealing? Or is God just someone you believe in and say your prayers to once in a while? That's religion. Intimacy is the mark of being in a new covenant because you know His unconditional heart towards you. Second, there's equality versus classism. And that's really important. They will all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. When you would go to the tabernacle or the temple, barriers were everywhere. You see that? Barriers. Have you ever studied that? That's the way all temples are. For example, if you went to the temple in the Old Testament, there was an inner court for the Jews and an outer court for the Gentiles. There was an inner court for men and there was the court of women. And if you were a woman, you couldn't come in that one. And if you were a man, you, could, you couldn't come in. If you had a disease, you couldn't even come to the building. When we get to Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, we see women as well as men. We see foreigners as well as Jews. We see prostitutes as well as moral paragons. Do you know what we have here? If you understand the radical difference between religion that says, if you live this way, God will accept you, and the gospel says, because you have been accepted through Jesus Christ, you live this way. That's radically, radically different. If you don't see how radically different it is, you're in trouble because religion always leads to conflict. Religion is based on the idea of bridging the gap and that you're the one doing it. And if you base your identity on being a hard-working, faithful people, you have to despise people who are lazy. If you base your identity on being an open-minded person, you have to despise and feel superior to people who you perceive as bigoted. If your identity is based on being a moral, religious person, you have to look down your nose at other people you feel superior to who don't have your beliefs and don't agree with your practices. That is why religion leads to conflict, because all religion automatically makes you feel superior, which leads to exclusion and sometimes to oppression. It is a slippery slope. And that's why at most of our war wars in the world, at the root of it, is a religious conflict. Not a Christian conflict, but a religious one. But if you believe that you're saved by grace from the least to the greatest, there is no difference. We're all equally lost, whether we're kind of religious or kind of moral or a prostitute or an addict or a hitman for the mob. It doesn't matter. We're all equally lost. We're all equally affirmed and loved in Jesus Christ. It destroys the thing in religion that leads to conflict. It expunges it from our souls. Have you ever felt it from the least to the greatest? And finally, fr from community, from individualism to community. Notice he says, I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be that my, uh, their God and they will be my people. They will be my persons. It's an important decision. He doesn't say, you will be one of the many individuals I have a personal relationship with. 
When you experience my salvation, it makes you part of a new community, a new people he is creating. Remember we said over and over that Jesus is not a priest, but he's not just a priest, but he's a king. He's not just a priest, he's a creator king. You know what that means? Jesus did not come to create religion. He came to create a new world. In the beginning, God created a world. He created the world and then propagated people to fill it. Now he's recreating through redemption. He starts by creating new people, and later on, he's going to design a new world for us to live in. Do you know what the people of God is? It is the new humanity. We'll talk about this more next week. But the powers of the age to come have perforated this present age, have poked a hole in it. And the powers of the new age are coming upon God's people. And he is creating one new man out of all tribes, tongues, kindreds, and nations. He is building a people, a community. God's new humanity, it's the pilot program for the great future he's going to be producing in which all injustice is gone, all poverty is gone, all disease is gone, all evil is gone. To be saved is to be a part of that new humanity, a place where radical grace has changed us. And we get a foretaste of what life in the new heavens and the new earth will be. And so when you realize God came and said to you, I'm going to be faithful to you even if you aren't being everything you should be to me, that means we can't treat church that way. We can't walk into church, look around and say, I will come to church as long as it's meeting my needs. I'll be friends to you, brothers and sisters, as long as you are meeting my needs. But if you're not meeting my needs, I'm out of here. I'm going someplace else. That is religion. Religion says, I will be to you what I should be to you to the degree that you're being what you should be to me. The new covenant creates a covenant of people who look at brothers and sisters, who look at the church and say, yeah, the church is relatively flawed. All these brothers and sisters around me are relatively flawed but I'm going to be true to them. I'm going to commit to them, even if they're not always being what they ought to be. Doesn't it make sense to do that? If you understand the gospel? That is what the writer of Hebrews is summing up what he said so far to us now. Next week, we will look more thoroughly at the reality of the new covenant and what that represents. But, if God is personal, we have to relate to Him. But if God is this personal, why wouldn't you want to relate to Him? Understanding the new covenant makes a relationship with God so much more accessible and exciting and adventurous and filled with joy. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for um, this text, and we thank you that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion, came to get rid of it and create a new covenant people who are bound to him, and he is bound to us. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as those who are excited about the grace of the gospel not in a religious fashion, trying to manipulate or twist your arm 
or back you into a corner where we think we're obligating you to do something for us, but rather to give freely with joy because of what's been given for us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.